This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the conflict between the United States and Iran escalates dramatically after the U.S. targets and kills a top Iranian general. Iran is vowed to retaliate, and President Trump says if that happens, the U.S. will hit back, quote, very fast and very hard. Plus, new CBS Battleground tracker numbers show a familiar face now on top of the 2020 field in Iowa and New Hampshire. There has been dramatic reaction around the world this weekend following the U.S. drone strike that killed Iran's top military general, Qasem Soleimani. President Trump stayed out of public view Saturday following his statement that the administration saw their action as an act of de-escalation. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. But late Saturday, the president took to Twitter to promise a staggering response if Iran retaliates, saying, if Iran strikes any Americans or American assets, we have targeted 52 Iranian sites, and we will hit them harder than they have ever been hit before. The U.S. is sending more forces to the region, and around the world, security has been heightened on American facilities and installations, and Homeland Security officials warn of potential attacks on U.S. infrastructure. We'll talk with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, as well as two influential Senate voices on foreign policy, Florida Republican Marco Rubio and Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy, who's called Soleimani's death a shocking assassination. Former CIA director and retired general David Petraeus will also be here. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. In Iran today, tens of thousands are paying their respects with a massive funeral procession for General Soleimani. Iranian officials have ramped up their threats of retaliation, warning that they may target 300 American-affiliated sites for potential military response. And this just in. The Pentagon announced that the U.S. has paused its efforts in the fight against ISIS due to a need to protect U.S. troops in the region. CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams joins us from Iraq. Chief National Security Correspondent David Martin is at the Pentagon. David, uh, let's start with you. What preparations is Iran making to respond? Margaret, I spoke to a U.S. defense official just a short time ago, and he says that Iran, among other things, has brought its ballistic missiles to a higher state of alert. And he uh, told me, and I want to read this so I get it correct, uh, it is unclear whether Iranian military movements are intended to better prepare to defend themselves or to be better prepared to execute strikes. When I said to him, that sounds like we're on a razor's edge, he said yes, and the tension in his voice was palpable. We are at a dangerous moment, probably the most dangerous moment of the Trump administration. Holly, uh, Iran this morning saying that they may look to restart their nuclear program. Uh, that's a long-term threat 
what David's describing is an immediate one. What is happening on the ground? Well, Margaret, uh, people in this part of the world are bracing for something. Iran has made it crystal clear that it wants revenge. But, of course, we cannot know how or when that might happen. Uh, the U.S. military here in Iraq is on high alert. We've already had two rocket attacks yesterday close to Iraqi military bases where U.S. personnel are also working. And Hatayib Hezbollah, that's an Iraqi militia group that has backing from Iran. Uh, it has warned Iraqi government security forces to stay away from U.S. military bases here in Iraq beginning this evening. Also today, Iraq's parliament is holding an emergency session where pro-Iranian lawmakers are calling for the roughly 5,000 U.S. troops based here in Iraq to be ordered out of the country. David, Qasem Soleimani crafted this playbook of using proxy forces to do Iran's dirty work outside the country. But what you're describing is the state of Iran itself preparing to take action. What is the U.S. preparing for? Well, you, uh, you saw the uh, president's tweets. He said that if Iran attacks Americans or American assets, they have identified 52 targets. That number 52 apparently represents one for each hostage uh, taken when a mob stormed the uh, U.S. Embassy in Tehran nearly uh, 40 years ago. And he also said they would include high-level targets, presumably he meant uh, leadership targets, and targets that are important to Iranian culture. Now, in most military operations, uh, cultural targets are off limits. So this was a, a very extraordinary threat from the President of the United States. Holly, mm. uh, Qasem Soleimani directed mass murder. Are there people in the region who are actually celebrating? You know, it's interesting, Margaret, when it comes to regional reactions. Israel is pleased. Uh, the Israeli government has praised President Trump for his, quote, decisive action. But when it comes to other countries, even those that feared and loathed Qasem Soleimani when he was alive, uh, they seem to be concerned um, about the repercussions of this assassination. Take, for instance, Saudi Arabia, arch foe of Iran. It is urging restraint and says it's worried about escalation. We also spoke with two Iraqi lawmakers today. They are not friends of Iran or its influence in this country. In fact, uh, they're very supportive of the U.S. military presence here. But they told us they are frustrated by American actions and fearful that Iraq is going to turn into a battlefield for a proxy war between Iran and the United States. Holly and David, thank you. We turn now to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Margaret, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show this morning. Uh, does eliminating Qasem Soleimani take out the specific plot that you say was an imminent threat? Well, Margaret, uh, we made the right decision to take out this terrorist. Uh, he not only caused enormous death and destruction throughout the region, killed hundreds of Americans over the years, but had done so in the past couple of days, killed an American on December 27th. We watched him. We watched him continue to actively build out for what was going to be a significant attack. That's what we believed, mm -hmm. and we made the right decision. But uh, as, as General, as General Milley said, has it been eliminated? There, there, are, there are constant threats. We've been, we've been under threat from the Islamic Republic of Iran since at least 2015, when the previous administration made the mistake of entering that horrific nuclear deal and gave money and resources to this regime. Uh, the threats remain, and we'll continue to take actions to respond to them. So Iran can still carry out that specific threat you described as imminent? Is it Mar still imminent? Margaret, we continue to prepare for whatever it is the Iranian regime may put in front of us uh, within the next 10 minutes, within the next 10 days, and within the next 10 weeks. We are, we are focused on delivering a strategy for the American people. Uh, we're going to get it right in a moment, but we're more importantly going to get it right over the days and weeks and months ahead. We have put Iran in a position it has not been in before. It is under enormous pressure, and we are con continuing to be successful at denying them the resources to conduct precisely the types of campaign that we're confronting as a direct result of what happened over the past eight years before we came into office. Up until this point, the U.S. had avoided specifically targeting and taking out mm -hmm. top Iranian military leaders. Were all of the president's national security advisors in full agreement that Qasem Soleimani need to be killed? Yes. Complete agreement across the cabinet? It was a collective decision. It was intelligence analysis that doing nothing created far more risk. Than the action but doing nothing isn't the same as saying specifically Qasem Soleimani needed to be killed. 
Margaret, there was unanimity that we were making the right decision okay. that day. Uh, it was based not only on this uh, intelligence, but you need to look, look no further than the days that led up to this. Qasem Soleimani led and orchestrated a Khatib Hezbollah attack on an American that mm-hmm. killed an American. There was sound and just and legal reason for the actions the president took, and the world is safer as a result of the bold action that President Trump took. President Trump is saying that there are 52 sites that mm-hmm. the U.S. would target if Iran retaliates. How is that consistent with what you say is your message of de-escalation? Entirely consistent. Threatening to bomb mainland Iran? The Iranian leadership needs to understand that attacking Americans is not cost-free. Setting out conditions to say, these are our expectations. These are the things that America is expecting from you. And if you don't do them, the cost will be clear and and direct. And we have an obligation to speak to the Iranian leadership clearly and directly so Mm -hmm. that they understand that America is prepared, that we will continue to keep the American people safe, that we will reduce threats throughout the region if they take certain actions. So they're entirely consistent. The entire strategy has been one of deterrence to convince the Iranians that it would be so costly and to support the Iranian people so that they could see that what their leadership was doing was was destroying their country. But they're uh, not we've been, backing we've been, down. We've been Why very effective at this. Why do you think that this will make them back down? Isn't uh, this such a threat to Iranian pride to have one of their most powerful leaders killed? Does this Qasem Soleimani killed yeah. hundreds of Americans. To take a terrorist off the battlefield does not increase the risk of terror. The risk of terror is, is increased by appeasement. That's what the Obama-Biden administration did. It's what President Trump will never do. He also killed thousands of people in the region. He he directed mass Uh, murder. Hundreds of thousands, a massacre in Syria. Absolutely true. Does this mean other Iranian leaders are now potential U.S. targets? We're going to do everything required to keep the American people safe. That sounds like a yes. We're going to do, under President Trump, what he has directed for months. We're going to execute our national security strategy and convince the people of Iran that we are with them mm-hmm. and the Islamic Republic of regime leadership that, that, that their terrorism will not benefit them. Iraq this morning uh, has been carrying out uh, some votes and debate over the presence of U.S. troops. And now uh, the question is, if, if Iraq legally requires, as the, this is what they're looking at, U.S. troops to leave, will the U.S. comply? I don't want to speculate about what the Iranian, Iraqi leadership will do. We'll watch. We're following very closely what's taking place in the Iraqi parliament. Make no mistake about it. The Iraqi people, too, are protesting, but not against America. What you see on TV well, this is, is, hap- is happening at the direction... Iraq who is yes, talking about this the, right the, now, the having expelling 5,000 U.S. troops. The acting prime minister of Iraq, who resigned because of massive Iranian interference in his own government's ability to execute sovereignty and independence for Iraq. It's why he left. But and the Iraqi the United parliament States, has now voted to it approve is uni- it. It is the United States that is prepared to help the Iraqi people get what it is they deserve and continue our mission there to take down terrorism from ISIS and others in the region that is in defense of the Iraqi people and is good for America, too. So I hear you saying the U.S. wants to keep those troops there, and we'll work on that. What are you doing diplomatically? behind the scenes to try to de-escalate? Well, it's not just behind the scenes. We're doing some of it publicly, too. Uh, the messages, Have you reached out to the regime The, the messages that were the, the, the Iranian leadership, including my counterpart, knows precisely what President Trump believes, wants, and desires and is demanding from the Iranian leadership. Make no mistake about it. But it's not just the last few days, Margaret. It's something we've been working on for an awfully long time. We've built out an enormous coalition, Gulf states, Israel, we built out a maritime coalition. We've got an air defense initiative that is mm-hmm. a multi-country effort. We've flowed American forces, but we've had forces coming in from our European friends and partners as well, and the Canadians. This is a multi-country global but, diplomatic but effort. But for the first time to since deter World War Iran. II, the U.S. has now taken out a foreign military leader on foreign soil. Is a terrorist. This is it may be, but this is a significant action. Do you really believe that Iran's going to sit down and negotiate now? Depends how smart they are. It, it depends how much they take seriously what President Trump has communicated. If they take it seriously, they'll do the right thing. They will not continue to threaten not only Americans, but the entire region. The instability that they have created for our ally Israel, for our partners, the Saudis, our friends, the Emiratis, all of these countries. Soleimani and his band of merry brothers have been a negative influence in the region for an awfully long time, and they are mm-hmm. thankful for the action that American took. The details of the threat that you describe as imminent, and it sounds like you were also saying is ongoing, have not been shared with Congress. The details that were transmitted yesterday were kept classified. When will the American people know 
why President Trump decided to do what he did. Well, Marco, those aren't the same thing. You said they have been kept from Congress and kept classified. They have been shared with Congress. The congressional leadership has certainly seen it. Those members who have come back will get to see most all of that same information. I don't think any reasonable American elected official would see what President Trump and I and Secretary Esper saw and conclude that we could have done anything but the action that we took. And will that be declassified and and explained to the American public? And, and Margaret, we will do our best. We understand the obligation to share with the American people why it is we're taking the actions we can, and we will do so. Uh, President Trump has done so in tweets. I've done so in messages. I'm sitting here with you today articulating why it is in America's best interest the action we took. As for specific pieces of intelligence, you and I both know. I was a director of the CIA. There are things you simply cannot share. There are valuable information streams that we must protect. We will need them in the days and weeks and ahead, and we will never present the risk to the United States by putting at risk that valuable information. But to be clear, that threat continues to exist? That plot? There, there remain enormous set of risks in the region, and America is preparing for each and every one of them. That includes not only the threats from the proxy militias in Iraq, but in the region more broadly, along every vector, including cyber. Secretary Pompeo, thank you for joining us this Margaret, thank you very much for having me on. We'll be back in one minute with Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio. He's standing by. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Joining us now is an influential member of both the Senate Intelligence and Foreign Relations Committees, Florida Republican Marco Rubio. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Uh, overnight, Iran's military has been readying ballistic missiles across that country here at home. Homeland Security is also issuing a terrorism bulletin. Do you believe now that America is safer after carrying out the strike against Qasem Soleimani? Well, I believe that Iran was on the verge of uh, scaling up the attacks that they were aiming against the United States, probably through surrogates in many places, not just in Iraq, but in Syria as well. And the United States had to take action in order to prevent that from happening and to make very clear what would happen if they undertook further attacks down the road. We were the subject of, I believe, over 10 or 11 rocket attacks just since October. It was made very clear to the Iranians what would happen and to the IRGC that that Soleimani headed, what would happen if a single American was killed. That happened. They crossed that line. And if you don't enforce the consequences, they won't believe it and they'll continue to ratchet it up. And as far as the missiles are concerned... I believe they're probably dispersing them because they fear that a U.S. counterattack would come. Uh, But that's not unusual, and it's not the first time we've seen them take these sorts of actions. And by the way, the fact they even have ballistic missiles tells you why the Iran deal was so flawed. It provided them billions of dollars that they were able to use to fund all that. Senator, Qasem Soleimani was uh, responsible for directing mass murder. There aren't a lot of people in this country mourning him. No one's disputing that. But... The idea of taking this to the level of escalation in a cycle that was already growing in threats, of taking out one of Iran's top leaders, has many asking if the administration has a strategy in place to follow up so that there isn't a cycle that further escalates. Yeah. You know, I keep hearing that about the strategy. Here's the strategy. We are there for an anti-ISIS operation and to support the Iraqi government, by the way, at the invitation of the Iraqi government. The Iranians don't want us there, and they are threatening to kill Americans. The president of the United States has an obligation to protect those Americans. Soleimani was a threat. He was not there on a diplomatic visit. He was there on a terrorist mission. Are you concerned, though, about what the strategy is here? Overnight, President Trump issued a threat on Twitter to bomb 52 sites in Iran. What is the administration's strategy? Has it been explained to Congress? Yes, at least I understand it, and it's it's, it's called self-defense. The United States has five, over 5,000 military personnel in, in, in Iraq uh, and, and, of course, uh, additional personnel in Syria who are under direct threat, not just from Iran, but from their proxy groups. And Iran needs to understand that if we are attacked, whether it's directly by the Iranians or through these proxy groups, we will respond. 
This president has shown, you know, he's not getting a lot of credit for it, but tremendous restraint after 11 rocket attacks, after everything that happened in the shipping lanes, after the, the mines that they placed on those ships, after the attacks against Saudi Arabia. He has shown tremendous restraint in not responding to those. But now we have reached a new level, and it was time to enforce the crossing of these red lines. So, but do you think the, the president's failure to follow up on his past threats against Iran, to carry out some kind of action against all the things you just laid out that Iran was doing, did that force his hand on this? Is that what you're suggesting? No. What I'm suggesting is that the Iranians, uh, at the end of the day, do cost and benefit analysis. And for whatever reason, they calculated that the benefits of these continued attacks through the use of these proxy groups, what the benefits of that outweighed the costs. And it was time for the president to reset uh, that analysis for them. And he did through the strike and through the strike uh, last Friday as well. And so uh, it was an important moment and had to happen. But here's the bottom line. The president of the United States Why did it have had to actionable, happen, though, reliable Senator, intelligence. I, I think there are the a lot of people concerned and want to know, and, and you are in a position to perhaps shed some light here. What was the imminent threat? That's the language the administration is using to Americans. Well, and here's the... Yeah. So when you gather information like this, it's highly sensitive. It cannot be disclosed at this time without also putting in danger our sources, our methods, losing access to future intelligence of this kind. But here's the bottom line. If the president of the United States is presented with information that there is an imminent and credible threat that could cost the lives of not a couple hundred, potentially hundreds, if not thousands of American servicemen and women and other personnel in the region, the president has an obligation to act. Any president would have an obligation to act, and this president did. What was so particular to this intelligence, though? I know you can't get into details, but Qasem Soleimani had been carrying out attacks on U.S. interests for decades, and this had been happening in, in the weeks prior. What was so specific that ca caused the president to take this specific action? How do you justify that to the American people? Well, again, it goes by justify. I think the question is, how would you justify not acting on even the possibility that Americans could die? Do you know what I can the tell threat you, was? The president does not act. Yeah, not only do I know what the threat was, I know what the threats are and have been for months. Again, I refer you back to a tweet, to, to my tweets going back to May of last year when we talked about this. This is not something overnight they woke up one morning and said, let's... Let's uh, start attacking Americans. This is an ongoing pattern of escalation in which they use proxy groups to carry out what they believe are deniable right. attacks. They can kill Americans. They can right. deny it was them. But we know it was them. They know we know it was them. Everybody else knows it was them. Some of these countries around the world pretend it wasn't them so they don't have to right. get out of the Iran deal. But everybody knows it was them, and they think they can ratchet that up without consequence. They thought they could get away with it because, you know, what we're did... distracted by our domestic politics because we're so divided internally. We're not going to do anything about it. You say you know the threat, but it can't be shared at this point with the American people or broadly with Congress. I want to ask you specifically about something you did share. You tweeted that Qasem Soleimani was plotting a coup in Iraq. What did you mean by that? Absolutely. If you think about what his strategy is, his strategy is to put in place a government in Iraq, in Iraq, friendly to the Iranians, almost a puppet state, so they can turn the entire country of Iraq into a platform to attack American interests around the world. This is not about governance. It's not about us putting in place someone in Iraq that we want. It's about his desire to put in place a government and leaders in Iraq that allow him free reign to use so Iraq not a, as a not, platform to carry out attacks against the United so States. So more of the same, the U.S. and Iran jockeying for power is what you meant. Um, no, but in, in his case, there wouldn't be any jockey because he would be. In, he wants to control. He wants to have leaders that are friendly to him, expel us, and then they can use Iraq as a base of operations in combination with Syria and Lebanon to continue their expansionist uh, desires in the region and to drive us out and, and, and to. And you actually our think Iran's going to stop doing that now that Qasem Soleimani's dead? Well, I think that Iran now has to sit there and say, we are, how far are we now willing to go when we know that our adversary is far more powerful than we are, that in the end there is a war, which I do not want. I'm not advocating an invasion of Iran. I'm not advocating we bomb uh, Tehran uh, offensively, that we take action or invade them or anything of that nature. I am saying that it has to be clear to the Iranians that if they take actions against the United States directly or through these proxies, we will hold them responsible and we will act. And if that is not set in stone and they do not believe that, then Americans will die. Then we will be in danger. If that calculus does not exist, the Iranians will act against us. They will kill as many Americans as they think they can get away with. And, and we have to make them understand that we are serious when we say we will do things if they act. Everything the president is warning about is all defensive. He is not saying 
Congress, I need 100,000 American troops to invade Iran. That's why all this talk about war powers and congressional authority is so silly. The president's not talking about invading Iran. He's talking about responding to anything Iran may do in the future. And a president has not only the full authority to do that, but an obligation to do that. Senator Rubio, thank you for joining us. Coming up next, we'll hear from a key Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee responding to the Republicans. That's Connecticut's Chris Murphy. He is here with me, and we'll get to talk to him in just a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're joined now by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who is on the Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, good to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. You heard Secretary Pompeo and Senator Rubio say that if Qasem Soleimani had not been killed, there would have potentially been hundreds of Americans who would have been casualties. Do you believe that there was an imminent attack? Well, first, it's incumbent upon the administration to present that evidence to Congress. But even if there was an imminent attack, and there are always threats being presented to U.S. forces in the region by Iran and Iranian proxies, the responsibility is on the administration to prove to us that by taking out the second most powerful political figure inside Iran, they are preventing more attacks rather than inspiring additional attacks. The reason that the Bush administration and the Obama administration did not green light the execution of Qasem Soleimani, despite the fact that he was carrying out attacks on U.S. forces, is because they believed ultimately that would get more Americans killed. And you can already see the consequences to U.S. security in the region with, as you have noted, uh, the beginning of the process to expel American forces from Iraq. We know that uh, there was some notification given to Congress. You heard Senator Rubio say he knew what the threat was but couldn't share it. Who in Congress actually knows what happened? So my understanding is that there was no consultation with Congress uh, before this strike. That is in violation of the War Powers Act, and there has been very limited communication since then. I would hope that we will get a full briefing. But that briefing not only has to talk about the intel behind the attack, Mm -hmm. but why it was absolutely necessary to take this dramatic escalatory step. We do not generally execute high-level political figures of sovereign nations, in part because we know that that opens a Pandora's box Mm -hmm. that may expose American officials to assassination, but also because we know that ultimately that might get more Americans killed as it likely will. The administration had designated the part of the IRGC that Soleimani ran as a terror group, which is the sort of the cover that you heard uh, Secretary Pompeo refer to in saying he was a terrorist as well. That argument doesn't hold up to you. Well, he does not have authorization from Congress to go to war with Iran, and this potentially sets us on a course to do just that. Listen, this administration's Iran policy has been a disaster from the very beginning. Iran is more powerful today than at the beginning of the Trump administration. They've restarted the nuclear program. They have more influence in places like Yemen uh, and in Syria. And now they are on the verge of launching potentially disaster strikes against the United States. That is a disaster from the beginning to the end of this administration's policy towards Iran. Just a few minutes ago, you said execute Qasem Soleimani. And on Twitter and on camera earlier this week, you used the word assassinate. Technically, that's prohibited under U.S. law. You chose that word for a reason. It's politically loaded. Why do you think that is needed here? Well, I I don't know any other way to describe it. This was the uh, intentional execution of a high-level official in a sovereign nation. Um, Qasem Soleimani is an evil man. He has absolutely ordered the murder of hundreds of Americans, but he is a high-level representative of a foreign government, a foreign government with a military that could uh, that could strike at American civilians and American service people. The, the question is, why didn't the administration look at other means to try to stop this attack from happening? Reporting suggests that his own military leaders were shocked mm-hmm. that the president chose an assassination versus more targeted strikes against other Iranian or Iranian proxy assets in the region. Right, which is why I thought it was notable when the secretary said that all cabinet members had agreed um, and, and top national security advisors. Uh, I want to ask you, because you, you've been critical of uh, whether this was legal for the president to do this, and specifically this authorization of military force debate. 
I spoke with the former Obama administration uh, DHS secretary, Jay Johnson. I'm sure you know him. He used to be general counsel at the Pentagon. And and he said this, direct engagement of a senior military official of another nation is harder to justify under the AUMF, which is your your argument. But having said that, under existing Office of Legal Counsel opinions, it's plain the president had constitutional authority to use lethal force against General Soleimani as vital national interests were implicated. Therefore, no congressional authorization was required. It's a former Pentagon lawyer, a Democrat. Why is he wrong? So in this case, the president has the burden of explaining to the American public and to Congress why the strike against Qasem Soleimani was necessary to prevent future attacks against the United States. There is a general understanding that to prevent future attacks, imminent attacks, you can take action without Congress. The contention here is that by assassinating a high-level Iranian official, that you are actually going to inspire and create more attacks against the United States, uh, not actually um, prevent those attacks. And so, so that's the burden argue, of though, proof that, that, that he by, has. By imminent, they meant ongoing. Qasem Soleimani was always targeting U.S. interests. Right. Right? So it, it was always... So, that, so if that's the case, that isn't an imminent attack. If this is just the same set of threats that have existed to the United States personnel in the region for the last seven years, right. then in that case, then the administration absolutely has the responsibility to come and get an authorization from Congress before taking action against a sovereign nation. You know, there are a lot of people listening who will hear that and say, yes, particularly in the military, that'd be great if Congress did something about the AUMF. But look, they haven't. Because when they get their own party's leader in the Oval Office, no one wants to do something that's actually going to constrain the powers of the executive. But listen, the president is bound by what Congress gives him the authority to do. The uh, framers of the Constitution didn't give him the ability to start a war just because it was hard to get authorization from Congress. The framers wanted us to have the power because they were worried about exactly what's going on now. The president, by pulling out of the Iran deal, has set into uh, uh, motion... This is an AUMF from 2002. Right. There was the entire Obama administration. You're saying the reason nothing was updated to this point is what? The the risk is much greater today, right? When President Trump came into office, he set into motion a series of blind escalatory measures with Iran that now have us on the precipice of war. Um, And if he is contemplating taking future military action um, Mm -hmm. against a broad set of threats to the American public, then he has the responsibility to come to Congress. And he'll veto any authorization, if there was one, that's put in legislation and sent to his desk. You know that. Well, again, he can't act without authorization from Congress Congress unless he's responding to an imminent threat. And he has the responsibility now to prove to us that this was, in fact, an imminent threat. Um, Again, the the worry here is ultimately this is going to get more Americans killed. And the very fact that we are watching the Iraqis expel the United States from from Iraq so that we can't carry out the fight against ISIS, right, which is in many ways a more grave threat to American interests in the region than Iran is. I think it is proof that this ultimately may accrue to the detriment of American national security interests. Senator Murphy, thank you for coming and talking to us today. We'll be right back with retired General David Petraeus. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Joining us now is former Obama administration CIA director, retired general David Petraeus. Good to have you here. Good Good to be with you, Margaret. Thank you. Qasem Soleimani was your adversary when you were running. And a very, very capable one. What was your thought when you heard he'd been killed, the first thought? Well, it was a surprise, uh, to be candid. Uh, We'd never gone after him before, although I hasten to add that he never dared set foot inside Iraq, uh, to my recollection, when I was commanding the surge, nor in the time that I was the commander of U.S. Central Command. Uh, He only really became uh, visible in the way that he has uh, in more recent years after the Arab Spring, uh, supporting the murderous Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and then very actively supporting the Iranian-supported militia uh, inside Iraq that were helping to 
contend with the Islamic State invasion of uh, northern and western Iraq. Now, he openly traveled. He did. He, he did selfie, selfies on the front line. Yeah, he was on social media. Uh, but, of course, that was a period when he was helping Iraq go after the same enemy that we eventually helped Iraq defeat. And make no mistake about it, those militia and the Iraqi security forces could not have defeated the Islamic State in Iraq without our enabling uh, forces, our drones, our precision munitions, and our intelligence and advice. There's been a lot of talk over the past few days that both the Obama and the Bush administrations had looked at targeting Qasem Soleimani and deemed it too risky. You just said that was not the case when you were in your position. During the, during the periods that I was in Iraq and in Central Command, I can't talk about what we might have discussed when I was the CIA director some years later, but certainly at those times, uh, we just didn't have the opportunity. It never rose to any real consideration, even for me, much less taking it back to Washington, which we certainly wow. would have done. Well, again, we had never had him on the X. It just—it yeah. wasn't the opportunity. The, it's he not was in Iraq. Was My understanding is, uh, prior to the surge, there was an episode where we detained some Iranian uh, advisors and so forth, which we had to release actually under pressure from Iran through the president of Iraq. But that was just prior to the start of the surge. You heard Secretary Pompeo uh, on this program say that it is entirely consistent for the president of the United States to threaten to bomb Iran, 52 sites specifically that it's consistent with trying to de-escalate. Is that well, credible? Well, first of all, I think... It certainly doesn't sound it. What has happened here, I think, uh, is frankly that we lost the element of deterrence, uh, the component of deterrence that was seen as American will. Our, our drone, $130 million drone, was shot down, did nothing significant in response. 5% of the world's oil production taken out of uh, operation numerous attacks on shipping, and then attacks on our forces, ultimately, of course, killing an American and wounding four of our soldiers. So ultimately, the, the president appears to have decided that it was necessary to take an action to shore up deterrence, mm -hmm. to show that we were not going to accept this. Does this do that? And then, Does this deter? Well, well the, you know, you will have to see. Again, uh, the question is now, what will Iran do? Will they dare to respond directly with Iranian missiles against our forces, our embassies, our bases, our uh, shipping, or what have you? Or do they continue to operate through proxies, which I'm pretty confident they will do. And then again, what is the scope of that? And the bigger issue is one you actually got to this a bit with Secretary Pompeo. But I think the real question for the United States is, will there be a diplomatic initiative that says, okay, look, this is not headed in a good direction. We truly do want to de-escalate. Everyone is going to lose if this continues to ratchet upward. Can we now sit down and talk about getting back to the nuclear agreement with addressing the concerns that the administration has had? You're saying there needs uh, to be a strategy, so a follow-up well, strategy. Well, and, and again, there does, and the question is, is that there? And I, I'm, and I obviously don't know. And we didn't get an answer to that question. Uh, I, I, again, we'll have to see how that plays out in the days and weeks that lie ahead. Yeah. But I'm sure that the equivalent of the National Security Council uh, in Iran uh, is working very hard to do all the calculation and to determine what would the U.S. response be, having seen that the U.S. is willing to take a very significant action. I mean, it's impossible to overstate the significance of the attack that takes out Qasem Soleimani and the number two militia leader uh, in Iraq as well, who also never dared to set foot in Iraq during the surge after we missed him and he escaped. So this is bigger than bin Laden. It's bigger than Baghdadi. This is the the equivalent, in U.S. terms, of the CIA director, CENTCOM commander, JSOC commander, and presidential envoy for the region for Iran, in the most powerful figure in Iran for the solidification of the Shia crescent uh, and also the operational commander of the uh, actions that they were pursuing. And if another country had taken out even one of the individuals you just listed there, how would the U.S. interpret that? An act of war? Um, again, these are definitions. I mean, were we not at war already? I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that to the, the constitutional scholars and so forth. The same with whether the Article 2 of the Constitution right. gives the president the authority to do what he did. Um, Iran's revolutionary regime, uh, you heard Senator Murphy say they're stronger now than they've been. Economically, they're really on the road. I, I don't think that's entirely accurate. I mean, their economy is in dismal shape. Right. The people are demonstrating on the streets in, in unprecedented numbers since the revolution uh, against the economic deprivation, the lack of employment opportunities, and the 
plummeting of their quality of life. So they're not, by the way, they're not that invested in the kinds of Iranian adventures that have been funded and, and carried out by the Revolutionary Guard Quds Force under the leadership of Qasem Soleimani. They understandably want, they care about themselves and their families, and they're not that happy. But what I've had um, other military officials say to me is that all may be true. This may be a blow to the regime. Financially, they are struggling. But that the United States may be underestimating the brutality the regime is willing to take to keep themselves in power. That this is not a tip towards regime Oh, I don't underestimate that at all. There are two million besieged militia, they're called. These are thugs with pipes on the streets that will clear the streets to the extent that they can. That's in addition to the Revolutionary Guards Corps and the armed forces and Ministry of Interior Forces. So again, this regime is not going to go quietly uh, into the night. And I don't think this leads to regime replacement or or, or some kind of uh, failure of the regime. Or uh, That's not to be expected. The question is, what does the regime do in response to the killing of Qasem Soleimani? Last question. It's a quick one. It's your question. How does it end? Well, this is the reason I was asking about what is our strategy from here? Do we have a diplomatic initiative to reach out? It's not quite enough, I don't think, to say, well, they know how to reach us. I think we should actually be trying to reach out through intermediaries first, of course, as we have in the past, and then trying to come to some kind of agreement about how to get back to the nuclear uh, deal that was had its strengths as well as some uh, shortcomings, to be sure, and then address the other legitimate grievances and issues that we have about militia activity support and the missile program. General Petraeus, good to have you here. Thanks, Mark. We'll be back in a moment with Democratic Party Chair Tom Perez, and we'll look at some brand-new battleground tracker polls out this morning. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. turn now to campaign 2020. Our CBS News battleground tracker shows another shift at the top of the polls. We surveyed two early contests this week. In Iowa, Senator Bernie Sanders now shares the top spot with 23 percent support, along with former Vice President Biden and former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar follow with 16 and 7 percent, respectively. The rest are 3 percent or below. In New Hampshire, Sanders is also on top. He comes in with 27 percent support, compared to Biden at 25 percent, Warren at 18 percent, Buttigieg at 13, and Klobuchar at 7. There is more detail on the poll on our website at cbsnews.com. In the three months since he suffered a heart attack, Sanders has solidified his support. Our Anthony Salvanto tells us that Sanders' rise is due in part to some liberal supporters of Elizabeth Warren's moving his way. Also, his core of support is strong and steady, as opposed to others whose campaigns have seen more volatility. We want to note that Sanders also came in on top with fundraising among Democrats in the fourth quarter, raising almost $35 million, just under $10 million more than his closest competitor there on the fundraising front, Mayor Buttigieg. The Democratic field now stands at 14 candidates after former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro quit the race this past week. For a closer look, we turn to the chairman of the Democratic Party, Tom Perez. Good to have you here. Always great to be with you. But what do you make of these polls? Well, we have a deep bench, and uh, it's a fluid field. And this is not new for the run-up to New Hampshire and Iowa. Uh, we've seen it in 2007, with, uh, in 2008, with President, then Senator Obama and Senator Clinton. And what I see are the following. Uh, fluid field, because we have a deep bench. Uh, the enthusiasm is off the charts. Uh, 2008 was the high water mark for participation in Iowa. I'm confident we're going to uh, surpass that because there is so much energy across everywhere. And I'm equally confident that 
at the end of the day, we're going to come together around a nominee. I don't know who that is. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that we have such fluidity is a source of excitement. And, uh, and that's why it's so important for us to understand the, the, first, the, the four early states constitute about 5% of the delegate count. Uh, they're important 5%. Uh, but uh, only 5%. And so uh, this is a marathon. It's a jump ball at this point still. I would uh, agree. So for, for this week, though, we, we saw Julian Castro drop out. Yep. We know with this next debate stage, Cory Booker, Deval Patrick, they're not going to be on it, Andrew sure. Yang. They're all campaigning hard, though. Um, why do you think minority candidates haven't gotten more traction in the way that meets your standard to stand on that debate stage. Well, I was very sad when Kamala Harris uh, left the race. As you know, she qualified for the December debate stage, and I'm confident she would have qualified had she still been in the race for January. Uh, Her and, issue was fundraising. I'm well, asking about the people who yeah, are still no, in the No, I understand. Uh, and, you know, I, I take a backseat to no one in our commitment to making sure our, our field is diverse, and we've had so many people uh, and so many candidates of color who've been in the race throughout. And but whoever this next wins, debate stage is all white. Well, we don't know yet because we still have a number of days left, and so we'll see who makes the debate stage. But here's, for me, the most important thing is uh, we've created um, thresholds now, and, and these aren't new thresholds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those who say that we've somehow uh, done a disservice or have, have uh, made it harder for candidates of color, I, I disagree with that. The candidate who's going to, the candidates who make the debate stage are the candidates who do the best job of working across the ideological spectrum of the Democratic Party. Jesse Jackson, uh, L. Sharpton, right. Barack Obama, all of them qualified uh, and would qualify are you with looking, these debate criteria. You're saying you, you could see some new entrant to the perhaps January debate, but are, are you actually suggesting that you might revisit these standards for the future debates to allow for more diversity. Well, again, I, if, if your question is, should we lower, you know, again, the, the, stand, the, the debate threshold right now is, is quite low. It's, it's quite fair. Nobody who has been at below 5% a month before the caucus or primary has ever won a caucus or primary. And so what we have done uh, is to make sure we've set a fair bar. It's the most inclusive bar ever. Mm -hmm. And then you have to demonstrate progress. And the candidates who are at the top of the field right now are the candidates who've been able to amass support among the wide array so of our diverse... So it's you're not changing. Well, again, we're, we're, we're de you have to demonstrate progress here. And, again, uh, the candidates who you saw there right. are the candidates who have been able to demonstrate that progress. And that means that... They are showing support in communities of color. You can't win the Democratic primary right. if you don't have strong support in communities of color. But you're not changing standards to make the debate stage for February, for March, for April. Well, we, we don't know now. what the standards are for February, March, or April. But if you're asking me, should we lower the debate threshold? I didn't say lower. I said change. Well, we, we, as you move throughout the debate process, you always uh, you, you have to raise the bar because... Uh, we will see people who have voted uh, mm -hmm. as of February. And so we will assess then and then make those judgments. So Bernie Sanders, we, we just showed the war chest that he has built. He's taking in a lot of small dollar donations. In the past, you've said you wanted to kind of incentivize grassroots um, money raising. So does that mean that the DNC would prefer that as the chief way for a candidate to fund a campaign, not by comparison, what Mike Bloomberg is doing, which is self-finance. Well, actually, if you look at all the candidates who are in that polling that we've just showed, what we're seeing is that there has been Democratic fundraising, uh, Democratic candidates for president, and the DNC have actually outraised uh, Trump and the RNC in mm -hmm. 2019. So you're fine That's with self-financing when it comes and, to Mike Bloomberg's strategy? Pardon me? Mike Bloomberg, self-financing. Well, that's up to uh, Mayor Bloomberg. He has, he has decided that, and the voters will figure out and will decide whether they believe Mike Bloomberg is the candidate. What I'm excited about is we have more, and, and it's not, it, I applaud mm -hmm. Senator Sanders. Yeah. All the candidates have been making tremendous progress in grassroots fundraising. Okay. We had more new uh, grassroots donors in 2019 than in 2017 and 2018 we have to, combined. We, we that's have good for the party. Lead, we have to lead it there. We want to have you back again. We've We'd love to. That's it for us. Next week, we'll be talking with Gary Cohn in his first Sunday show appearance since leaving the Trump administration. For Face the Nation, 
I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Republican Senator Marco Rubio, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, and retired General David Petraeus. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.